You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We can use tech to build a stronger democracy and a fair economy. Really? Join me, Baratunde Thurston, on September 23rd and 24th for Unfinished Live a convening of technologists, journalists, artists, and changemakers. You'll hear from Ethereum co-founder Gavin Wood, Glitch CEO Anil Dash, journalist Casey Newton and Anne Helen Peterson, and more. Go to live.unfinished.com for tickets and use the promo code LIVEAUDIO. Welcome back to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today I'm continuing my conversation with Camille Stort and Lauren Zabrick about diversity in the cybersecurity community. Camille is a prolific advocate and strategist who works at the intersection of cybersecurity, national security, foreign policy, and social advocacy. And Lauren is the executive director of the Cyber Project at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. If you missed the first part of our conversation, I encourage you to listen to our episode posted before continuing this one. Now let's get back to it. Lauren, you also um, recently published a piece about the need to create uh, space for innovation within the intelligence community during a time when it kind of feels like every aspect of our local and federal government is scrambling a bit um, between a global pandemic. Um, the U.S. is in the middle of an election year. Um, we have a tremendous you know, loss of jobs, and th- there's just so much going on in our ecosystem. Can you share a little bit why you think now is the time to be looking at innovation and disruption? Yeah, and thank you for you know allowing space for uh, to discuss that um, that piece. You know, just to touch on this piece, you know, these ideas really came from my experience in the intelligence community, and um, you know, part of the reason that I originally applied to the Kennedy School in the first place was because I wanted to fix some of those issues that I saw writ large, but also using my very positive experiences in those previous five years. Um, in the piece, I talk about creating what I called a, an intelligence community innovation unit um, that would sort of echo the disruptive models of things like the defense Intelli- or defense innovation unit and defense digital service um, formed by former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter um, that would be really tasked with looking at hard issues from a cross-functional and holistic perspective and coming up with innovative solutions. Um, you know, I'd been thinking about these things for several years, and I had written about them as a student. But as COVID-19 began to surge and people were really discussing innovation, um, and especially for this particular community that couldn't indefinitely work from home like many of us can now, um, I thought it was a really good time to throw my thoughts out there. And, you know, as we see, um, you know, how people work is evolving and, 
um, you know, just general change in general, um, sorry, general change happening, um, you know, I think it's important time to kind of step back and say, all right, what's, what's not working here? What is working? What can we do better? Um, you know, not only from um, an institutional perspective, but, you know, also just, you know, from a, a humanity perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I just think as difficult as this time has been, I think it sort of, um, you know, strips bare some of those, I guess, practices and institutions that we've just been really used to and I think provide some opportunities for change. It may actually be the right time because the things are, you know, in the state that they are. So it may be the right opportunity to, we, we you know, we, we hopefully have hit close to the ground floor and it's just time to rebuild from here. Um, changing just a little bit, but still still the same theme. Both of you have, you know, worked in public and private sector. Camille, you, you served as a senior policy advisor um, in DHS under President Obama. Now you're at Google. Lauren, you have a deep background in the military and civilian intelligence, and now you're heading a project that investigates how cybersecurity is shaping international conflict. Can you talk a little bit about how you have had to shift or adapt your approaches to diversity in different environments and in different cultures? And what approaches you found that have been the most successful? And um, perhaps we start with Lauren on this one. So I think most of the organizations that I've worked for have appreciated the need for diversity, but maybe, you know, like maybe many of us have thought that it would happen organically and perhaps, you know, didn't really know so much about those systemic barriers that preclude greater organizational diversity. You know, I'm, I'm certainly still learning. I, you know, am no expert by any means, but um, you know, I'm grateful that the Belfer Center has been so pre- proactive in bringing in experts and, and making these discussions a priority. From my own perspective, I'm really trying to be more proactive in seeking out diverse candidates for things like fellowships, research assistant positions and events and discussions um, to make sure that those diverse voices are at the table. Um, I understand that, you know, there's certain language that we can be using um, to make things seem sort of less exclusive and more accessible to people. Um, you know, I certainly know that Harvard can be very intimidating. It certainly was for me. Um, and so, you know, again, trying to understand more about others' lived experiences and even the very small or seemingly small interventions that we can take. Yeah. Interesting. Camille, your thoughts? Yeah, I find that to truly affect change, you have to incentivize it and, and make systemic change. Um, and so the places I've seen most successful incentivize diversity outcomes, whether that's, you know, tying it to executive comp, um, which I think is actually a really important one, um, and investing in diversity at all levels. You should have a diverse leadership or else it doesn't permeate. And making sure that it doesn't stop at diversity inclusion must come hand in hand with diversity. You have to to create an inclusive environment where people can thrive or else just having them enter the room but not welcoming them to the conversation is is pointless. Um, And then from a system perspective, you know, creating systems and processes that actually facilitate that diversity. I think the Department of Homeland Security did a, a really good job in 2016 of getting creative with how they did some recruiting by having a career fair that where they could offer um, jobs immediately on the spot. Many of the roles are contingent upon 
clearances and things like that. So they were they were contingent offers, but it was a different way to get new people in the door where they were actually having a conversation rather than someone just looking at a resume that not may not represent them well or a job description that may use limiting language like we're talking about. Um, and it was an opportunity for, for there to actually be a conversation where folks could actually learn about skill sets without self-selecting out and without selecting people out because you didn't see a term, a phrase that you were used to. Um, and so I encourage more of that, more creativity in how you get people in the door, uh, changing job descriptions so that they don't include things that allow folks to self-select out and don't actually communicate what you need as an employer. There's a difference between it would be nice for you to have certain technical acumen, but we're going to teach you how to use our tools anyway. And what I'm looking for is someone who's a strategic thinker who can fill X gap. And if that's really what you're looking for, that's what you should be communicating to your recruiter. And that's what should be represented in your job description. But by saying certain things are preferred or required when really those aren't the only manifestations of that skill, that ability, that knowledge, um, we are limiting ourselves in the realm of who can come to us. And then, you know, really empowering the folks internally um, is a really big part of making sure you have an inclusive environment. And I encourage people as individuals to be an active participant in elevating your colleagues and supporting colleagues who are asking for change around diversity and, and inclusion um, and finding ways to elevate the voices of those whose voices often get lost is really big and something each individual can do because I know people tend to feel powerless, um, but we all have a role to play in making change. I, I think that's exactly right, Camille. And I, I will tell you, I was writing a job description yesterday and I read it, you know, where I, you know, I took the generic template right off the Microsoft, you know, platform then I had to add my content and as I'm reading it I was and it's the most closely I have I'll be honest in all my years of hiring it is the most closely I've ever read a job description and because I said is the language in this job description going to actually allow the right people to apply across a broad spectrum to the like do I need a college degree for this job even that was like hmm, and I started thinking about right do I need a college degree for this job or someone with this set of experiences? Could they do the job? And just looking at the language and making sure, because we're in cybersecurity also, making sure none of the technical terms in, in the job description were technical terms that would either be, you know, we tend to be very either militaristic and there are terms that, that are just not, are not super engaging and inviting to people, right? And it was, it was an interesting exercise for me because I, you find your own blind spots is what I'd say. You know, I, I JDs are in my mind. JDs were always just JDs. I wasn't too worried about them. I was worried about the candidate, not realizing what a turnoff they could be to people. We've talked a bit about you know the issues. We, we've had a little bit of talk about some practical advice, but in terms of specifically and being really specifically about embracing diversity, what do you think um, is going to equip businesses and individuals to actually deal? with creating both a diverse and inclusive environment. You know, we say you go where you're invited, you stay where you're welcome. How do you get people to feel like they're invited and how do you get people to feel like they're welcome? And can, can you give like those two or three tips for businesses? And then also on the flip side of that, when individuals are looking at opportunities, what should they be looking for to know that it's an environment where they are going to be welcome and wanting to stay? Um, Camille, let's start with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes intentionality. Um, at this point, 
we've already built organizations, systems, institutions that may or may not likely have not been built for these folks or built with these folks as part of that organizational development. And so um, being intentional about letting the evolution of your culture, your company culture, your organization culture, include all of the voices is really important. Um, some companies have started that by the creation of ERGs, but those can tend to be really siloed and create these siloed experiences for uh, different groups within the organization. But what you need to do is make sure that those groups are integrated within the broader community such that their concerns, their issues are part of what drives company change, cultural change, um, and isn't left to be this kind of uh, pod of folks that are kind of encouraging each other and building a safe space within the organization, the whole organization should be a safe space. So if you find that people are not able to show up as their whole selves, you need to make change within your organization. And a big part of that is making sure you also have diverse leadership. It's hard to uh, see a difference in how people are experiencing your organization if everyone in your leadership change tends to experience the organization the same. Um, so investing in diverse leadership is really important. Investing in creating an open culture and encouraging people at your organization to uh, step outside of their comfort zone and have really tough, uncomfortable conversations. I think we all need to be in a place where we're ready to have uncomfortable conversations and to engage with those ERGs, engage with whatever structures you have in place that um, that are built to promote diversity and facilitate inclusion and make sure that they aren't left to being just siloed spaces that are safe, that that safety permeates through the entire organization. You know, I think that's really interesting, Camille. I'm the um, executive sponsor of Microsoft's ERG for Gleam, our global LGBTQIA plus employees at Microsoft. And one of the things we found um, in think, talking about ERGs or employee resource groups is that at Microsoft, we, we had to solve one, one big issue was funding. They were all volunteer funded by different, you know, different like executive sponsors within the company. And that led to different experiences, right, which made them even more siloed because some organizations had, you know, more um, capability to do events and to do to, to really live their mission than others. And that's the, one of the first things that, that we've been tackling, one of the things we've been tackling in the last couple of years, but also to your point, making sure that they're not siloed and making sure that, um, you know, that members like, you know, if, if the women at Microsoft, men are open to join that, right? It, making sure that, that, you, that they're inclusive too, that anybody who wants to be part of that ERG and positively contribute, they should be part of that ERG. Right. I think it's important to have those safe spaces, right? People still need that, still need a place to collaborate and commune. But the differences in funding is reflective of the difference in access to leadership also, right? Many ERGs don't actually have any influence on how leadership looks at company culture or the evolution of products, et cetera. And that should be part of it. And then to your point, there should be opportunities for broader engagement. So one, people can learn about how the experience differs by different, you know, cultural affinities or um, religion or, or uh, sex status or anything. Um, there should be intentionality about making sure that the understanding um, of the broader community is part of 
the beauty of the ERGs. Exactly. And they're a great vehicle. And to your point, they do there do need to be some safe spaces within them. They're a great vehicle, but they also need to be used beyond just having people get together and talk. They need to be influencing things that happen within the company. And we have a great uh, diversity leader. Lindsay Ray McIntyre has really, since, you know, in the few years she's been at Microsoft, turned that ship. And that's part of that diverse representation, having diverse people in leadership and people that understand. Um, before we close on this, Lauren, uh, would love to get your thoughts also on uh, just, you know, the, the few things that either the government or private sector can do and then what individuals should be looking at when they're thinking about an environment they want to join. Yeah, I, you know, I think what Camille said was, was um, you know, spot on, but I guess I would just add, you know, asking questions of not only yourself and your organization on a continual basis, you know, how can we do better? Um, but I really do think it, you know, it's the people surrounding you, but it's also the people at the top. Um, and I think any good leader has at least two attributes, you know, vision and taking good care of their people. So what is your vision for the future and how will you take care of your people who work for you and work for, you know, the organization to really bring that vision to bear? And so, you know, really part of that is, you know, setting the culture and, you know, really saying like, listen, you know, this, this is the environment that I want to have, uh, you know, in my organization, and I'm not going to tolerate anything less. Um, having an open door so that people know that they can come talk to you and, and share their, um, their concerns, um, making sure to actual, tar you know, target people for opportunities instead of saying, well, people will just come if, if that opportunity is there. Um, you know, I, I think back to my experience in, um, in government where, um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of, I guess, um, professional sort of networking and mentorship opportunities. Um, and so I, I, really tried to create an organization for women at NGA. And the, you know, the person that I went to actually was um, the deputy director at the time, Sue Gordon. And, you know, she was so willing to listen to me and so willing to provide that space and opportunity to make something like this happen. And so just having buy-in from the top um, and, uh, you know, also having those leaders emulate those particular qualities and attributes, I think, is uh, is really important. Yeah, I do, too. And, um, you know, in the interest of the cybersecurity community is is very small at times, too. So it was also a guest on the podcast. And she's she's just an amazing person. Isn't <laughs> and she? We had a lot of fun with her. Uh, we had a lot of fun with some of her stories. So, um, well, it's a small world like, for sure. It is a small world. Um, hopefully getting bigger, though, and hopefully getting more diverse and inclusive and bringing more folks in that don't all have the same background and look the same and think the same and have the same college. Um, Absolutely. We need some of that. Um, thank you both for joining. Thank you for being really candid. Um, I think your perspectives, your lived experiences, your, your bringing your whole self has been great for the audience. Um, you know, one of the things that we also like to do um, at the end of our podcast is um, I'm going to move off diversity for a moment is if you have any practical tips for people, um, whether it's organizations or individuals in just protecting their cybersecurity. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny. My friend just texted me um, about an hour ago and she's like, hey, my friend's mom just got hacked. And, you know, so I, I was like, all right, here's what she needs to do. Number one 
but uh, you know, I, I certainly believe in the basics, and you know, some of those are, and I don't want to take any you know steps away from Camille, but you know, having strong random passwords for each of your accounts, and you know, whether you use a password manager or something else, you know, to help you do that, I think is super important. Um, and then, of course, either two-factor or multi-factor authentication, so that um, you know you know if someone else is trying to access your account. Um, and then I also recommended to her, to my friend as well, you know, if if you want to set up some sort of monitoring, you know, try you know one of those firms like LifeLock or something like that. But you know, there are many ways that you can protect yourself, which is very important, you know, and, and I'm just going to make a quick plug here. Um, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity, I say cybersecurity is national security, but, you know, the government cannot be the sole arbiter of national security anymore. We are all responsible for it and we can all take steps to, you know, raise our collective security together um, and be aware of the threat. So um, definitely really passionate about that issue. Thank you. And Camille? Great tips. I I'm going to use this moment since I'm you know lead security policy for Android and Google Play to step on my mobile soapbox and remind people of how important their mobile phones are and how um, susceptible they are to attack. I think people tend to focus on you know building resilience and and implementing security on their computers, but don't really think about how much access is is on your phone, you use it as a diary, you check your bank accounts, you get driving instructions and all of these things. And, and we do it so freely, we don't think about the trade-offs we're making between convenience and security or convenience and privacy. And so I wanna remind people to be intentional about the permissions that you grant apps as you download them, to read the terms of service and the policies. And even if you don't dive that deep, if something pops in your face and says, you're gonna grant this app, your location. Do you want to do that all of the time? Sometimes, never. Like really give thought to whether or not you need to do that. Um, it's not that I don't download apps. I download a lot of them, but I don't give them everything that they ask for. You don't need my location to, um, to be a chat app. You don't need my location to, um, you know, provide me certain services and I'm not going to give it to you unless you, I feel like you do need it. Or maybe you only need it when the app is open. You don't need it all the time. You getting my location information in the background is problematic. And since most of us don't read the privacy policy, you don't know that they continue to collect that location data and send it elsewhere. So, you know, understanding that, and that's across a number of things, your contacts, et cetera, you don't have to grant an app everything it asks for, even if you want to use it. Um, be intentional about what you grant access to. Um, you don't need to download every app just because it's the cool one. Uh, you don't need to participate in every trend because it's the cool one. Um, but be thoughtful about the trade-offs you're making about using the tools that Lauren talked about, strong passwords, two-factor authentication, and things like that to protect your mobile device because it is a gateway to a lot of information. And don't link accounts. Don't use Facebook or Snapchat or anything to authenticate into other apps as much as possible. Um, that kind of overlap means if they hack Facebook, if they hack Snapchat, they've have the ability to access so much more. So protect yourself by limiting the amount of accounts you link together as well. 
That's incredible. Thank you both for such great advice. Thank you again for um, joining me today. I've really appreciated hearing from both of you, and I wish you all the best on your both your individual and your collaborative efforts um, in the future. Thank you again. So in thinking about a podcast um, and what really wanted to talk about diversity and inclusion in the era that we're in um, right now, I felt it was important to find um, voices that um, could represent, you know, the state of affairs, but also future proofing against bias. And the work that Camille Store and Lauren Zabrick did with Share the Mic in Cyber um, Initiative on Twitter, where they collaborated together, brought industry thought leaders together. It was just amazing to me. And I really wanted them on my podcast. So I'm so happy they said yes. I think my biggest takeaway from the episode with Camille and Lauren is the pragmatic guidance they provided. It was just this incredible blend of two extremely talented professional women who are thought leaders in the areas and domain specialists, but also could get down to practical advice that was consumable by end users. It was it was incredible experience to have them on the show. And many thanks to our audience for joining us. Join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. We can use tech to build a stronger democracy and a fair economy. Really? Join me, Baratunde Thurston, on September 23rd and 24th for Unfinished Live, a convening of technologists, journalists, artists, and changemakers. You'll hear from Ethereum co-founder Gavin Wood, Glitch CEO Anil Dash, journalists Casey Newton and Anne Helen Peterson, and more. Go to live.unfinished.com for tickets and use the promo code LIVEAUDIO. At T-Mobile for Business, unconventional thinking means we see things differently so you can focus on what matters most. That's why we've become the leader in 5G, number one in customer satisfaction, and a partner who includes 5G in every plan. So you get it all. Unconventional thinking is better for business. Open Signal awards T-Mobile as America's fastest 5G network USA. 5G user experience report July 2021. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some users may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. For J.D. Power 2020 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.